Good morning, Church. Trust and pray you are well. Here is today's reading, taken from Colossians 4, verses 7 to 18. Verse 7 reads, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Anasimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of circumcision among fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and here and in Hierapolis. Look, the beloved physician greets you as does Damas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and church in her. And when this letter has been among you, have it also read in the church of, Laod- of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my, cha- remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word from the Lord. Thank you. I um, do need to share some more news with you uh, before we move into the sermon. So it seems to be a day for for big news. Uh, Most of you would have seen the the president's announcement uh, that we're moving to lockdown level one and things are opening up come 1st of October. If you're excited, I can promise you we are excited. Uh, I had the senior staff doing cartwheels on our WhatsApp group uh, when the news broke. We're very, very excited, and we are moving fast to to act on that announcement. So um, if you're wondering, when are we back, when are we back, please watch this space. Uh, We hope to be able to communicate our plans with you very, very soon. We just do need to iron out some of the details, but we are not going to miss the opportunity together. So, um, yeah, so, so we're excited, and we're excited together. The second piece of news I need to share with you, or at least reflect on with you is the passing of Emily Rahube. So uh, many, many of you will know Emily. She is, uh, she, she was a, a, a mother and a grandmother, a matriarch figure in our church. She was there right from the beginning. Um, and she just was an extraordinary woman. Uh, there's no other way to, to say this. You know, we often talk about a redeemed family of servants on mission and, and sometimes we say that a bit glibly, but if you want to know what that is, what, what we're actually trying to, to capture when we say those words, well, Emily Rahube was, was a member of the redeemed family of servants on mission in flesh and blood. So, so if, you, if you're trying to understand what we mean when we say that, well, there was an embodiment of what it means to be part of the redeemed family of servants on mission. So I'll just, I just want to share some of my own personal reflections on my engagements with her in those categories. Uh, when we think about mission, I never saw Emily more animated 
than when she was talking about her mission trip to the Free State. So she was part of a group that that has been a couple times now, I think, to the Free State. And uh, and she would just light up talking about that mission. I actually asked her, Emily, it sounds awesome. I, can I join? She said, sorry, the bus is full. We're not changing our team. Our team is our team. And, uh, and, and we do what we do. And, uh, and then she went on to tell me how wonderful it was again. Uh, so she, she was just, uh, just had a passion for, for Christ, for sharing Christ and for doing it in practical ways. So sharing the gospel and loving people materially, uh, meeting them at their point of need. And then there's Emily, the servant. You know, we rock up here pre COVID in the, in the pre COVID days. We rock up here as staff uh, before seven on a Sunday. And you, so there's some staff milling around and starting to get the place ready for, for the Sunday service. The only other person you could count on seeing every single Sunday was Emily in the kitchen, beavering away, getting things ready for the eight o'clock service, the tea and the coffee, preparing all of that with Kate normally, sharing some banter, always cheerful, um, but getting stuck in. Uh, and there regularly to serve God's people week after week after week and doing it, as I said, with such a, such a servant heart, such cheer. Uh, not, 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 um, she wasn't grudging about it. It wasn't a chore. It, it seemed to be genuinely an expression of who she is in Christ. And then family. You now here was, as I said, a woman who is a grandmother to us, a mother. I think of one conversation we had on race and racism and uh, she was actually correcting something, and quite rightly so, in my own heart. And we were talking about it, and just her manner, she really, it really felt to me, it was so loving, so gentle. This was real sin. And if you think about who Emily was and her family background, she shared some of those heinous stories with us, publicly, on stage. If you think about all of that, um, and then the, just the way, her manner, the way she took me aside, it really was like a grandmother dealing with her grandson and saying, you know, listen, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, just gentleness. She had every reason, humanly speaking, to be hateful and bitter and angry, but there was just none of that. It was nothing but love and gentle correction. And, and that just sums her up for me. So here's a woman who really embodied family service and mission and why. Because she understood her redemption. Because she was a gospel woman. Because she understood who she was in Christ. So we do, we do mourn her passing. And, and we want to be praying for the family. But we also rejoice that she's run her race. And she, she is forever an example to us. We will be with her one day. She's forever an example to us of what it means to be part of the redeemed family of servants on mission. So I'm just going to open in a word of prayer and just thank God for her life. Father, we thank you so much um, for Emily and for all she uh, means to us and all she was to us. And we pray for a special hand of comfort for her family. We pray for, for gospel opportunities, uh, gospel conversations as they reflect on her passing. Um, Father, we thank you and praise you for her life. What a wonderful gift she was to us from you. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we, we might reflect deeply on who she was and, and reflect on how the gospel, what the gospel made her and long to imitate her as she imitated Christ. 
So um, we thank you and praise you this morning for her. And as we turn now, Lord, as she would want us to, as we turn out to hear from you, please will the same Spirit of Christ who worked so powerfully in her life uh, be working in our lives too, to make us into what we already are in Christ Jesus, a redeemed family of servants on mission. Amen. I'm not on Facebook, uh, but I do like the idea. I like the original idea. Um, Facebook has become all sorts of things over the years, but, but that original idea, if I'm not mistaken, was based on the old yearbooks. So you would see a, a photograph of the person, and then underneath the photograph, just written a, a short profile, just capturing the essence of who that person was. So here's a picture of Kate. Um, she's, she's wearing the, the jersey beanie combo that her mom knitted her. Underneath it says, Kate loves Chelsea Football Club with an undying passion. Uh, she had a cat called Jose Mourinho until Jose himself went to coach Man United and then the cat went back to the SPCA, or words to that effect. But that's Facebook, right? That's a yearbook at least. Sometimes you and I might look at old class photos from when we were at school, and when you get over looking at yourself and the rubbish haircut that your mother gave you and the pants that are three sizes too big because they hand-me-downs, when you get over all of that, when you get over yourself, you start to look at the other people. And it's best to do this with an old friend who was actually there. You know those conversations. Remember this guy, the class clown. Remember that guy? This guy was such a nerd. And this, this guy, remember how he used to pick his nose and wipe it on the girl in front of him when we were lining up for tuck? You know, you trade all of those memories. That kind of experience is at the root of Facebook. What Facebook gives in its purest form is the profile of a person in pictures and in updates that allow you to understand who they are and keep in touch. That's basically what we have in these last few verses of Colossians. Paul is swapping profiles of people from the church in Rome, where he's located, with the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. And it actually makes for really interesting reading. We tend to skip over it. It's a bit of sort of a, you know, the credits coming up at the end of a movie. You're not really paying much attention. But it makes for such interesting reading because it gives us profiles of the kind of people who make up any local church, not just this particular group of local churches. So what we have here is Facebook from the, 20, from the first century. Facebook from the first century. Let's have a look. Let's scroll through. We start with Tychicus. Now, the names are a mind bend. Uh, pregnant ladies, pay attention. If you're looking for names, there are plenty of those. Tychicus, verse 7. Tychicus is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. We read similar descriptions of him in Acts, in Ephesians, in Titus, and in 2 Timothy. Tychicus is first of all a child of God. And he's a child of God because Jesus, his elder brother, has reconciled him to his father. That makes him part of the family. That's why he's addressed as a beloved brother. And this is a family of all those who can call Jesus their elder brother. Is that you? Is, is that how you think about it? Have you actually realized this? If you trust in Christ, you have a deeper bond with the most uh, 
obscure, the strangest person in our church than you do with your blood relatives. The blood of your parents unites you to your siblings. But it's the blood of Christ that unites you to other believers. They are beloved brothers and sisters. Is that how you think of them? Is that how you treat them? Or has the transition to church at home not really affected you? Have you not really given them a second thought since we made that transition? Tychicus is a beloved brother. His identity before God comes first. And then his identity in the church. So we read that in the church, he is a faithful minister and a fellow servant. The word is actually stronger. He's literally a fellow slave. He is a slave of Christ for the churches. And he could be trusted. He could be trusted with money. He was one of the men Paul entrusted with the Jerusalem gift. The money that Paul had been collecting as he progressed through the Gentile churches on his mission trips. He was collecting money for the church in Jerusalem who were suffering under famine. So this is a sizable amount that we're talking about. It was a big responsibility. And it would have been a big temptation. But Tychicus could be trusted. Because he was not just serving the churches. He was serving Christ himself. How about you? Do you think of yourself as a servant? You know, when I first approached Martin about doing an apprenticeship at Christ Church Midrand in 2009, I think it was, I was leaving a good, uh, reasonably good career trajectory. Uh, I was an economist. I had decent pay. I was in the middle management role. I was a family man. So I, I came and I said to him, listen, I don't want to spend the year stacking chairs. I want to get my teeth into some real responsibility. I think I actually used the words, I don't want to be a slave. Now, at this point, he could have said, listen, why don't you come back in a year when you actually understand the gospel? But, you know, Martin, he's patient, and he just smiled knowingly. And then when I had signed on the dotted line, then he spent a year showing me that, in fact, I was a slave. Being a child of God is being a slave of Christ. It's a package deal. Our king was a servant. And you and I are not above our master. We are not above our king. Therefore, we are not above service. We are servants. It's something we are before it's something we do. Speaking of slaves, Tychicus doesn't come to the Colossians alone. He comes with Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave. You can read all about him in the book of Philemon. Now again, we need some, we need some training in ancient culture here because in the Roman Empire, runaway slaves who were caught were flogged or burnt with iron or killed or some combination of the above. Those who were caught and managed to live on, were branded with the letters F-U-G across their forehead from the Latin fugitivus. It's where we get our word fugitive. Socially, in that culture, it doesn't get any lower than a runaway slave. This is as low as you can go. These are the bottom feeders. 
But just look at how Paul addresses him. He too is a faithful and beloved brother. Do you see how radically counter... I don't think we can fully grasp how counter-cultural this would have been in the first century. Onesimus, the runaway slave, enjoys the same status as Tychicus, the trusted church leader. It's the same status. Beloved brother in Christ. It reminds me of another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Sharing from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I love these verses. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Maybe you don't think you are worthy. Maybe you are nothing in the eyes of the world. My brother, my sister, in the church, if we deserve to bear the name church, you are as worthy as the bishop himself. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your payslip says at the end of the month, or at the end of the week. It doesn't matter how far you got in your education. We in the church are on an equal footing before God. He puts us all in one family. And none of us is more a brother or a sister than anyone else. The single mother is no less important than the CEO. The domestic worker has no less a voice than the PhD scholar. It should matter nothing in the church of Jesus Christ if we are worthy of the name. In fact, God puts us together to expose and shame our worthless human pride. In Christ, we all have an equal claim to the status that matters more than anything else. Child of God. Is that how you think about it? We all need to check our own hearts. Next is Aristarchus. Aristarchus is Paul's fellow prisoner. It's not a metaphor. It means he was in prison with Paul. So we read in Acts that he was part of Paul's mission in Ephesus and that he sailed with him on his journey to Rome. And it's most likely that he volunteered. He volunteered to be imprisoned with Paul so that he could be a comfort to him, so that he could serve him in his gospel ministry. He gave up his very freedom to serve Paul and the gospel. How about you? When we look at these profiles, we're holding up a mirror to ourselves. So we ask the question again and again, what about me? Here's Aristarchus, but what about me? How does his example reflect on me? How much are you willing to give up? Can I say that we have some precious Aristarchi, okay, forgive me, I'm winging it, I'm not exactly sure what the plural, plural of Aristarchus is. We have 
so many people in his mold, they would gouge out their eyes and hand them to you if it served the kingdom. We have them. They are in our midst and we thank God for them. Are you one of them? Or is convenience your guide? You'll get involved if and when it's convenient. If and when you can fit it in amongst your other pressing engagements. Let me give us all a word of encouragement from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, By the oath, by the promise, by the covenant, and by the blood that sealed it, we are exhorted continually to be at work for Christ. Because we are saved that we may serve him in the power of the Holy Spirit with heart and soul and strength. And when we have come to serve Christ, is anything good enough for him? Could our zeal know no respite? Could our prayers know no pause? Could our efforts know no relaxation? Could we give all we have of time, wealth, talent and opportunity? Could we die a martyr's death a thousand times? Wouldn't he, the beloved of our souls... Deserve far more. There's nothing lukewarm about that, is there? Next, Mark. Mark is such an interesting character. We thank God for Mark because he shows us that the church is made up of people like us. So we first encounter him. He's in his mother Mary's house. Uh, it's in the early church, uh, recorded for us in Acts 12, early days of the Jerusalem church. Uh, Mary's house is obviously a base for the church, so Mark is growing up in a ministry family. And in fact, it seems like the gospel had touched his extended family because later on his cousin Barnabas, who's a very senior leader in the church, comes with the Apostle Paul. They come uh, to from Antioch to Jerusalem to deliver a gift. And then Mark goes back to Antioch with them. They take Mark back to Antioch, and then he goes with them further on Paul's first missionary journey. But they get halfway through and Mark throws in the towel. Mark abandons the mission. For whatever reason, the going was too tough. He lost his courage. He abandons the mission. The fallout is so much greater than Mark leaving the mission. Because when it comes to Paul's second missionary journey, he, refused to take, he refuses to take Mark with him. Of course, Barnabas, Mark's cousin, goes into bat for Mark. And the two men have such a fallout, this is Paul and Barnabas, that they go their separate ways. Mark was at least, at least partly responsible for Paul losing his closest gospel ally. Twelve years pass, we hear nothing. And then we read these words in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Extraordinary words. First thing we want to notice is that Mark is mentioned at all. Second thing, Paul doesn't mention him grudgingly. No, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, if Paul wants the Colossians to welcome Mark, well, he must have welcomed Mark first. That's what it means. It means reconciliation. Mark caused major hurt to Paul and serious damage to the mission, but he is fully restored. 
He's clearly active in gospel ministry again. This, my friends, is the power of the gospel. It allows us to face our sin, to repent of it, and to be restored, fully restored. In the past five years or so, we've had quite a few cases of church discipline. In each of them, the sin was confronted. Appropriate sanctions were applied, all with the hope of restoration. That's always the hope in a church discipline process. The goal is not punishment per se. The goal is restoration to Christ and to his people. In most cases over the past five years, the people have thoroughly repented. The people we're talking about have thoroughly repented. And they are fully restored. They are fully fledged members of our church family. That is nothing but the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel at work. You may be a mark as you listen to this this morning. You may be far from us and far from Christ. I hope you are hearing loud and clear that your father is calling you home. If you are tired of denying who you are, if you are tired of living a lie, well then leave it behind and come home. You are always welcome. The Hall of Fame in the Christian Church is lined not with heroes, but with failures who have been restored by the grace of God. Mark's pictures up there, prominent. Yours can be too. In one way or another, you and I may be like Tychicus, but we are also certainly like Mark. Failures, failures restored by the grace of God. Next is justice. Like Aristarchus and Mark, he's a man of the circumcision. He's a Jew, a Messianic Jew, a Jew for Jesus. We have Jews like justice in our church family, and we thank God for you. Just listen to what Paul says in his letter to the, the, the church at Rome. Listen to these words. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To our Jewish brothers and sisters in our church family, we thank God for you. Why? Well, because you are a flesh and blood reminder, an embodiment of God's goodness to humanity, stretching all the way back to Abraham. Justice was also a worker for the kingdom of God. Again, we ask, does the label fit? Worker for the kingdom of God, does it fit? How will you know? Look back over your last week, just this past week. You can take out take out your, church, your, your phone. You're in your living room. No one will, will object. Take out your phone. Look at your calendar. Is there anything there that can honestly be described as working for the kingdom of God? 
For many, the answer is going to be yes. If the answer is no, what do you do about it? We'll come to that in a moment. Just stay with me. Justus, Justus, who knows, and his compatriots are also described as a comfort to Paul as he leads the gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And again, we have to ask, is this me? Am I a comfort or am I just a critic? If you're leading anything, and gospel ministry is no different, there are people who just the sight of them lifts your spirits. They give you energy. They're the people you would call first in a crisis. You know they've got your back. Now, all of us who, all of us in, in the church family have people who are, are leading us in one way or another. Ask yourself, does my leader consider me a comfort or am I just a critic? Does her heart sink when she sees me? Or do I lift her spirits? Next, Epaphras, verse 12. We read in chapter, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that it was Epaphras who took the gospel to the Colossians. He was an evangelist. Here in chapter 4, he's called a slave of Christ. Only Paul and Timothy share that exact same designation, that title. Tychicus comes close, but it's not quite the same. So it seems like Paul reserved this title, a slave of Christ. He reserved it for senior leaders in the church. I mean, the church is such a strange thing, such a strange beast, isn't it? It seems like the higher you rise, the lower you go. Good for me to remember on a day like today. The leader is the lowest slave of all, the chief among servants. No other organization works like that. But for the church, it's unambiguous. Like Paul, Epaphras struggles for the Colossians in prayer. He wants nothing more than their maturity in Christ. That's his great passion. He wants these people to be able to discern the will of God for themselves. He wants them to grow in holiness. It's often said that people get the leader they deserve. So again, all of us have leaders across the church, various leaders in various ministries. What are you looking for in a leader? Charismatic speaker? A visionary? A forceful personality? Nothing wrong with those things, necessarily. But how about someone who prays for you so often and so intently and with such vigor that it can be called a struggle. Someone who struggles for you in prayer. Someone who's not satisfied with where you are in your faith. He's not going to leave you there. Desperately wants to see you grow as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus. And he will do whatever it takes to make it happen. Someone who is totally devoted to the will of God in your life. Someone who, verse 13, will actually endure pain. It's the, the word there is work, but it's the kind of work that involves pain. You want a leader who will endure pain to protect you from false teaching. That's Epaphras. Pray that the Lord will raise up many like him in our midst. Luke, the beloved physician, verse 14. Very little is actually written about Luke in the Bible. He's only mentioned by name here, this passage, in Philemon. And in 2 Timothy, 
he's, he's kind of an unnoticed servant who just happened to write 25% of the New Testament. It's amazing what you can achieve in the kingdom if you are willing to let God take the credit. Nympha, verse 15. Nympha is probably a widow. Her husband's not mentioned, and so in that culture that implies it's most likely that she was a widow. We ask, what difference can a middle-aged widow, perhaps an old lady, make? What can she contribute to this gospel enterprise? Her home. Nympha is a good hostess. She's hospitable. Hospitality is highly commended in the scriptures. Now you may be thinking, what can I possibly do? What difference can I make for the kingdom? Do you have a home? Why not open it to the church? Why not open it to outsiders so that they can come into contact with the church? Nympha did. And her name is recorded in Holy Scripture forever. Archippus, verse 17. In Philemon, he is described as a fellow soldier. Now, a soldier understands two things. One, I'm in a war. And two, I'm a man under orders. The Christian life is not what we sometimes make it out to be. It's not a hobby. It's not an extramural activity. It's not a cultural expression. It's not volunteer work. It is mortal combat. We are in the fight of our lives. We are fighting for our lives and for the lives of those around us. Now, you might say, but it sounds a little bit extreme. I think you're being a bit dramatic, you know, reining in a bit, preacher, a bit sort of rhetorical flourish. Go and read the book of Revelation and then decide if you think I'm exaggerating. We are at war. Archippus was at war, and the apostle reminds him that he's a soldier under orders. See to it that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. There's a story of an old English general who happens to overhear the conversation of two centuries, two privates. So this is really the bottom rung of, uh, of the military hierarchy. So he overhears this conversation, and uh, the centuries are changing. It's a changing of the guard. So the first private arrives, and he, he says to his comrade, So Jim, what's the orders at this post? And Jim replies, Why, the orders is... You're never to leave it until you're killed. That, my friends, is the kind of faithful obedience the Lord is asking of us. Stand your post. You've heard Martin pray for us a thousand times that we may be faithful to the Lord Jesus wherever he's placed us. Does that phrase sound familiar? We may be faithful wherever he's placed us. Stand your post. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he's placed you. And be faithful until your commanding officer comes to relieve you of that post and take you home. You think of Emily. Finally, there's the Apostle Paul himself, who in his closing words reminds the Colossians and us that he is in chains for the ministry. And that's it. Ten profiles that give us a window into what every local church is like. 
It's a mix of courage and cowardice, heroics and failure. It's a mix of Tychicus, Mark, Epaphras, and Nympha. All of us held together by faith in Christ and service to his people. Did you notice how different they all are? And yet each one is welcome in Christ and each one has a role to play. Now, Paul doesn't write, greet Nympha and please remind her to be more like Epaphras. If he did, if she was more like Epaphras, the church wouldn't have a place to meet. This is the church. It is made up of all sorts. And each one has a role to play as they are. Not only if and when they become more like someone else. Did you notice that I left one name out? We're offering a free bottle of hand sanitizer, commemorative COVID-19 hand sanitizer to anyone who can WhatsApp the name that I left out to Gareth in the next five seconds. Time's up. Who is it? Who did I leave out? Dimas, verse 14. Dimas simply sends greetings. That's all we hear about him. But we actually read about him later during Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. So there's one imprisonment in Rome. He writes the letter to the Colossians. Then, and we hear about Demas very briefly. And then we hear about Demas again in Paul's, when he's writing another letter during his second imprisonment in Rome. Uh, he writes to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas, who was obviously with Paul when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, has abandoned Paul by the time he writes his second letter to Timothy. What is the difference between loyal service right to the very end and falling away? What is the difference between Tychicus and Demas? What is going to lure you away from productive service in the kingdom? 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. The great temptation for all of us is to love this present world. Love for this world manifests in two basic ways. One, we try and bring the world into the church. Two, we leave the church and go out into the world. We can love the world so much that we try and bring it with us into the church. What do I mean by that? Something I speak to regularly, I spoke to it two weeks ago, constantly beating this drum in the world. What are we? What's our primary identity? We are consumers. The highest value, the, the almost absolute value in our culture is my freedom to choose. I must be able to choose. And I must be able to choose to the extent that I can even Here's an ex extreme example. I can even, even tailor my basic identity. That's how far we have taken freedom of choice. I'm not who I am. I am who I choose to be. So one, again, it's an extreme example, but I'm just trying to illustrate the point. We have um, contact with a young girl, young Christian girl who now lives in the States. She, she had to move for medical reasons. 
um, she shares with us just how confusing it is. Her friend saying to her, I'm going to be pan this week. Next week, I'm going to be bi. And then when I think when I get to 18, I'm going to switch to being a boy. It's this absolute freedom to choose on steroids. It's the worship of choice. Sovereign choice. Sovereign individual choice and autonomy. When we love the world, we try and bring that stuff into the church. We come as consumers, not as servants. We come as consumers. I mentioned last time, it often surfaces in the way we approach problems in the church. We approach them not as these are my brothers and sisters. How are we going to solve this particular problem? And we have to face up to problems. I'm not against criticism and problems and dealing with problems. There are many that need to be dealt with. It's how do we address them? So so if you're servant-hearted, you think, here's a problem. How are we as brothers and sisters going to solve this problem? It's a family problem. If you come as a consumer, well, I'm a free agent in the market for church experiences. I have a right to my choices. If this thing isn't sorted out, if they don't sort it out, if the church doesn't sort this out, I vote with my feet. See the difference? Enough about that. The other way we love the world is, of course, to leave the church altogether. There's just too much on offer out there. I can get my spiritual needs met in ways that don't actually demand anything of me. Now, when I do my yoga, not only do I feel cleansed and in touch with the universe again, but I also stretch my hamstrings. You know, I can, it's just 45 minutes twice a week. I can book online. It's just not like church with all these needy people and people going on and on about sin. I mean, that cannot be good for my positive energy levels. Now, when I talk about this, when I talk about a consumer attitude to church, how we bring how we bring the world into church, or how we go out into the world, the point is not guilt. Right? That that's not a that's not a place to arrive. That's that doesn't serve us for us just to feel guilty. But if you are feeling under the conviction of the Spirit, and you are feeling that perhaps there's just a a little too much of Demas in you and not enough Epaphras. What do you do with it? What's the remedy? Well, it's not to call Helen tomorrow and ask her to put you on every single service roster that we have. That is only going to result in one of two things, pride or burnout, or both. So what do you do? What was it that motivated Mark and Eustace and Nympha? What gripped them? What moved them? And what kept them going? What transformed them from the inside out? To use the language of last week. So that they not only served occasionally when they could afford the time, but they actually saw themselves as servants. What was that inside out transformation? What was it? It was what Paul has been giving the Colossians the whole way through this letter, a true vision of the cosmic Christ in all his glory and grandeur. It was the vision of Christ that captured them and freed them to live out of that reality. 
the reality that Christ is always enough. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of our series in Colossians, we praise you and thank you for your son. Thank you for this letter, Lord, Paul's letter to the Colossians, where we so freely encounter the Lord Jesus in all his glory. Help us to see him as he is, Father. Help us to see him as he is, because if we do, we will never, ever turn away to anything else. We pray this in his precious name. In the power of your spirit. Amen. That brings our series in Colossians to a close. I hope and pray it's been a real blessing to all of you. It has been such a blessing to me uh, just to just to encounter the Lord Jesus again in all his glory. Go well, everybody. Take care.